This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can listen to new episodes every Thursday. Just tap or click subscribe. This week we're profiling a 17th century noblewoman who spent much of her long life in a protracted legal battle to reclaim and restore her lost lands, including five castles. Upon her death, she was eulogised as wise, illustrious and immovable in her integrity. And it's perhaps testament to her importance that her likeness hangs today in the National Portrait Gallery in London. Joining us now to share the life and legacy of Lady Anne Clifford are a regular voice on the podcast, Senior Properties Historian Dr Stephen Brindle. Hello, Charles. And Karen Hearn, Honorary Professor at University College London. Hello. Let's get into Lady Anne Clifford and her family backgrounds then. So, Stephen, who was she? What was her family like? The Cliffords were a great English dynasty. They really were descended from a knight who'd come across with William the Conqueror. And back in the 12th century, they'd settled in Herefordshire, at Clifford in Herefordshire, and they became the Lords Clifford of Clifford. But a younger branch of the family inherited great estates of the Vieux-Pont or Vipont family in Westmoreland in the 13th century. So there's an old branch who are still represented by the present Lord Clifford, who now lives at Ugbrook in Devon, and the younger branch became much richer by inheritance, and that was Lady Anne's family. And the story of this northern branch of the Cliffords really sort of reads like uh, something from a novel almost. There's this very turbulent family history. The first Lord Clifford was killed at the Battle of Bannockburn in 1314. The second Lord rebelled against Edward II. He was hanged at York in 1322. Then there were a few natural deaths. But then the sixth Lord Clifford died in mysterious circumstances in the Mediterranean because he was going on Jerusalem in penance for having murdered someone. The seventh Lord Clifford was killed fighting for Henry V in France in 1422. And the eighth Lord Clifford was killed at the Battle of St Albans, fighting for the Lancastrian party. That was in 1455. His son, the ninth Lord, Butcher Clifford, or Bloody Clifford, who is supposed to have murdered Richard, Duke of York himself. He was killed at a skirmish in Yorkshire in 1461. And his son, Henry the Tenth Lord Clifford, well, his father had been attainted, that is, declared a traitor. The estates were forfeit to the crown. And the Tenth Lord is supposed to have been brought up on one of the family farms in Yorkshire looking after the sheep. Hence, he was known as the Shepherd Lord. And after Henry Tudor's restoration, the Clifford estates were restored to them, and the Shepherd Lord became a great figure at court. So it's uh, an extraordinary family history. I mean, you almost couldn't make it up. And Lady Anne was intensely aware and proud of it. The Cliffords had great estates across the north of England, in Westmoreland and Yorkshire. There was a great estate, which doesn't really concern us, called Lonsborough in the East Riding, there were great estates in the West Riding at Skipton Castle and Bolton Abbey. And there was the Barony of Westmoreland, which is the most important one, and there were another four castles there. Lady Anne was the daughter of the third Earl of Cumberland, George Clifford. He was a famous figure in Elizabethan England. He was Queen's champion to Queen Elizabeth I, and he had a rather superb set of armour made for him, covered with stars. And there's a famous portrait of him 
were miniature portraits, like a big miniature by Nicholas Hilliard wearing this armour. And he was a privateer. That is to say, he not merely financed, he actually himself commanded expeditions by ship to go and prey, in particular on Spanish shipping in the Atlantic and in the Caribbean, which were financially fairly successful. So he was a very vivid, exciting figure and very popular at court, but he was a neglectful landlord and he was a very bad husband and father. He was married to a really good woman, Margaret Russell, Countess of Cumberland, who was highly intelligent, highly educated woman, who made sure that Anne was very well educated, and Anne adored and worshipped her mother. And Anne was brought up in a mainly female household, and I think Karen will probably talk, talk a bit more about Anne and her relationship with her mother. So it was an extraordinary family history, going all the way back to the Norman Conquest, which reads like a whole history of England in itself. And Lady Anne was intensely aware of it. But so far as her own parents were concerned, there was this strange contrast between glamorous but absent and neglectful father and her mother, who she adored. And it sounds as though, from what you've been describing, that... Anne's situation for when, for around the time that she was alive, the family was kind of on the up at that point because there had been quite a lot of turbulence in the previous centuries. Yes, there certainly had. The family estates had been restored shortly after the Henry Tudor, Henry VII, came to the throne, and they had these vast estates in the north of England. But the family lived much of the time at court and in London, and Lady Anne didn't really see the estates in the north of England all that much in her childhood. I think she was brought up in a mostly female household. But I think um, Mm. maybe Karen needs to uh, contribute here. We'll we'll bring Karen in, yes. But uh, I just had a quick thought before we do, which is that I suppose what you've been describing sets up quite nicely the impending disappointment where these lands which Anne is expecting don't actually come to her. And this sets up this legal battle. But um, to bring Karen in and, and talk about... Anne, as this heiress, being from an aristocratic family with this history dating back to the Norman period, did the family have ties to the royal family, the royal court, good access to the to the monarch? Well, as uh, Stephen has said, the third earl was a, a big figure at court, a very flamboyant, very visible figure. Anne's mother was a member of the Russell family, which was also an eminent family, also a property-owning family. And she was an attendant on Queen Elizabeth I, and so Anne was present at court. And increasingly, as she grew up, she was more visible at court. So when James I came to the throne, the Scottish king, who inherited the English throne, and that's the creation of Great Britain, in 1603, after Elizabeth I died, Anne had played various roles at court. And indeed, one of the great court entertainments was something that's called the mask, M-A-S-Q-U-E, which is an extraordinary, extremely expensive, extremely lavish. Only the top people at court performed in these. And what they would do would be wearing purpose-made, extraordinarily expensive costumes, and they would dance, they would act often non-verbally. And Anne, we know, performed in a number of masks, certainly three masks at court. The king or the queen or leading courtiers would commission them. So with her connection to James I, Queen Anne of Denmark, that brought her into the mask. And in fact, there's a surviving costume design for her in the role of Berenice, Queen of Egypt, 
opera mask in 1609. Very extraordinary costume with apparently, possibly her breasts kind of visible under a transparent fabric. And that survival is an indicator of her importance at court. And in 1605, her father died. She was 15. When she was born, she had had two older brothers, Robert and Francis. One of them had already died. And in the year after her birth, the other one died. So she was her parents, her father particularly, only heir. And the extraordinary thing is that when her father died in 1605, for whatever reason, possibly to spite her mother from whom he was estranged or because he thought that as a woman, she would not be capable of controlling these great estates, he made a will which wasn't really legal, which willed the properties away from Anne to his brother, to effectively a male heir. And this was the kind of defining moment of Anne's life. And supported by her mother, she never gave up the campaign to have the will properly recognised and for her to inherit the estates. Yes, of course. she She was 15 at the time. So she was, it's quite a difficult time for a young woman to lose her father, particularly when he had done her such a disservice. At this point where her father dies when Anne is 15, how long was it that the estranged situation between her mother and father had been? How many years? I don't think we can itemise that. I mean, it's a bad, you know, it's a failed marriage. Okay. I think I can understand then why, in some respects, uh, the mother wanted to work strongly with her daughter to enable her survival post the father's death. Because otherwise well, she, she, she's going to be a bit stuck, isn't she? Yeah, well, I think it's, but I mean, as a mother, you would want to do the best for your child. I mean, Mm. regardless of whether you'd been on bad terms with your husband or not, your husband's gone. You'd do the best for your only surviving child. And her mother was this tremendous support for her. In a way, momentarily thinking sort of ahead, as I say, this became the defining moment of Anne's life. Lots of pressure was put onto her to really kind of give in, to accept a payment and to draw a line under the situation. And Anne, she was made to accept eventually to a certain extent, but she never gave up. And partly through the influence of her mother, she developed a sort of forensic legal mind. It's perfectly clear from surviving documentation. She was obsessed with looking into all the documents, into all the archives indeed, to ensure that her claim was never dismissed. So this is it's this forensic legal brain that she develops after this point, totally encouraged by her mother. Mm. And and a dogged determination as well, uh, by the sounds of things. Absolutely. You're going to say, Stephen? I think there's another point we need to bring in, don't we, Karen, that when the Earl of Cumberland died, the whole of the Barony of Westmoreland was left as the widow's jointure to his widow, that is the property that an aristocratic widow would receive on the death of her husband to support her for the rest of her life. And on her death, she couldn't will it away. The estate will be passed as directed under the will of her husband, which of course was to her brother-in-law, the new fourth Earl of Cumberland. So at that point, Lady Cumberland actually went to live in the north of England at Brougham Castle. 
And so she was actually living there and running the estates, which she had as her jointure until her own death. Lady Anne should have inherited the whole of the family estates, more or less, because they were entailed in the eldest child of whichever gender, and an entail dating back to the reign of Edward II. But the third earl either didn't know about this, or more probably knew about it and knowingly subverted it by bequeathing the estates to his brother. And that at least meant that the estates would remain with the title of Earl of Cumberland. And Lady Anne was supposedly bequeathed £15,000 in compensation. Very, very large sum of money then. I'm not really sure if it was ever paid to her. And her first husband was in need of money. A point we'll come to shortly. So Anne didn't receive the estates at all. So from 1605, Lady Cumberland, and mother, was living at Broom Castle in Westmoreland, while Anne made a spectacular aristocratic marriage, and we should probably move on to that next. Yes, and just before we do, I just want to get across this idea of an entail, because not everyone will be familiar with that. So what is an entail? An entail is a legal provision, usually attached to a will, which specifies that a property should descend in a particular family and sometimes by a particular line of descent. And for reasons I don't know, the Clifford entail, which dated back to the early 14th century, required that the property should pass to the eldest surviving child of the marriage of whichever gender. Now, it happened that the Cliffords had had eldest male heirs up to Lady Anne, because as we've heard, her older brothers had died. So Lord Cumberland had, whether inadvertently or not, had breached this ancient entail. And that was the basis of Anne's claim. And Anne was aware that she was legally in the right and that her father had been wrong. So just before we get on to this first marriage thing, this sort of starts the legal wheels moving, really, and Anne's story moving in a particular direction. Why could she not suddenly, if she knew that she was in the right, pursue this legal claim straight away? Well, it's because she was married and a woman, a married woman, could not act entirely independently without her husband. But um, I think we need now to move on to the character of her first husband. Indeed, right. So let's talk about Anne's first marriage and why this marriage becomes a problem for the legal claim. So, Karen, who does Lady Anne marry? She marries somebody called Richard Sackville on the 21st of February 1609 in, quote, her mother's house in London. And two days later, Richard's father dies and Richard becomes the third Earl of Dorset. So this marriage is clearly made in the expectation of his father's death and she thus becomes the Countess of Dorset. Richard is very good-looking. He's very interested in making a big figure at court. There are surviving portraits that show he's good-looking and he's very finely dressed. He's, some of his wardrobe bills, tailor's bills survive that show the enormous amount of money he spent on his attire. And he owns Knoll, K-N-O-L-E, in Kent, an astonishing, enormous treasure house, which survives today and is uh, belongs to the National Trust and is a great place to visit if you're interested in 17th century material culture. So Anne is, continues to be a, a figure at court, but she's also living at Knoll, her husband's property, And with him, she has, well, she has a number of pregnancies, three sons who all died as babies, just as her two elder brothers had died young. 
and two daughters. So Margaret, who was born in 1614, and Isabella, who was born in 1622. And those will eventually be, they and their descendants, or Margaret's descendants, will be her heirs. But at Knoll, she is desperately unhappy. And one of the very important and interesting things about Anne is that she leaves from certain periods of her life quite a lot of documentation. And she kept diaries. Most haven't survived, but her diaries from her years of this marriage, from her years at Knoll, do survive. And they are extraordinarily human. And her unhappiness, the unkindness of her husband, she's like a just a present day wife and mother in an unhappy marriage, trying to do the best for her children. Why was she so unhappy? What, what was it about Richard Sackville that uh, made her unhappy? Well, he was very unfaithful. I think he was also unkind to her. He is also, of course, wanting her to give up her claim, the claim that Stephen has so eloquently explained. Effectively, he wants her to give up her claim and get a cash payment, which, of course, given the marital sort of law of the time, any money that will go to her will immediately go to him and help him settle all his extravagant debts. Ah. So he's putting a lot of pressure on her to do that. And of course, her mother is, her mother dies in 1616. So she is, you know, she feels alone. She is alone. alone. She genuinely does feel alone because there she is banged up in Knoll in the country. And she's looking after her two small daughters. It's a very difficult time. And as I say, we do see this very human face of her, something that we can really identify with. So her marriage feels like a prison. She's lost her only emotional support in the shape of her mother. It sounds as though Richard Sackville wants to get his hands on this £15,000 in compensation, which she was bequeathed by her late father, and use it to stuff his own pockets. So this wouldn't be the first time in history that uh, couples have fought over, you know, felt unhappy over money. Is anyone wanting to agree? <laughs> um, uh, yes, indeed. Controversial, perhaps. Poor Anne was so unlucky that the men in her life were consistently not decent, well-behaved, thoughtful people. No, they seem to be quite uh, egotistical and unaware of the value of money, I think. The key thing next, I think, is that Anne does have a glimmer of light next because something happens to Richard Sackville. Can you tell us more? Well, he dies in March 1624. He dies suddenly. And, um, well, I know Stephen has identified this interesting comment that he died of eating a surfeit of potatoes and potatoes, probably sweet potatoes, were one of the things that was seen as aphrodisiacs. He was very, very unfaithful to her. And um, there are various, in fact, there's a mistress who he really flaunts in front of Anne. He really behaved extremely badly and um, one might say got his reward by being carried off by the potatoes. But at <laughs> the time he died, Anne herself was very ill, and she had smallpox. And smallpox at this time is absolutely rife and is a tremendous killer. And she survived. Lots of people didn't. It's, as it were, like a far, far worse chickenpox. But it leaves marks on the face. We have instances, there's a court woman at Elizabeth's court who 
catches uh, smallpox after the queen herself catches smallpox and survives. But her attendant then goes down with it and is so, as it was seen at the time, disfigured that she leaves court for good. Her face is, quote, ruined. And Anne Clifford, in her diary, says that her face was damaged by this smallpox. So this was a really ghastly time. Did Anne catch the smallpox and experience the scarring to her face? She says says that her face was marred by it, but we don't know. And one reason that we don't really know what that meant is that there are quite a lot of portraits of Lady Anne. That's part of this huge amount of evidence we have around her, both documentary and material culture. But it's the convention of portraits at this period that you never, ever see smallpox scars. The artists just edit them out automatically. So we're not in a position to judge. 17th century airbrushing. Well, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. What was the point of having your portrait painted if it didn't improve on reality within reason? So it's just the same as today. Given Richard Sackville's death then in 1624, which was caused by this perhaps what over overeating of sweet potatoes which he thought was improving his sex life is that right well that's the rumor did Anne then have a glimmer of hope that she might benefit financially from his death did he leave her anything in his will did he Stephen presumably he didn't not that we're aware, and it would seem not, because Anne, with her daughters, moved from Noel to Cheney's, which was one of her mother's family homes, and presumably by courtesy of the Russell family, and Noel passed to Richard's younger brother, Edward Sackville, who became the fourth Earl of Dorset, uh, whom she very much disliked, I think. Oh, right, so she was kind of, well, there's a lot to deal with here. She was uh, sort she, of evicted. She was edged out by the Noels, and if there was a widow's yep. jointure for her, I don't know what it was. This is a tough time for Anne, isn't it? Alone, the loss of her mother. She then loses her husband, thankfully, but then isn't really left anything and then is booted out of the home that she was living in and has to go into a former home of her late mother. So there's quite a lot of turbulence at this time. We talked earlier about Anne's relationship with her mother. What sort of evidence is there of this strong maternal mother-daughter relationship in the documentation? Well, of course, her mother dies in 1616, so she is 26 at the time. So she she loses her mother really quite early. But her mother, as Stephen said, really was intelligent, well-educated, and really gave her, you know, encouraged Anne to focus on not giving up her claim, not signing anything away. And her mother was her, her absolute rock. And for the rest of her life, I mean, she later on, we will talk about the measures she took to honour her mother's memory and the closeness of their relationship. Yes, that's an important part going forward, I think, from here. The memory of Anne's mother helps spur her on because she was such a great support. Let's move on now to another phase in Anne's life. She does marry for a second time. Stephen, can you tell us a bit more about Anne's second marriage? In 1629, Anne's elder daughter, uh, Margaret Sackville, married John Lord Tufton, who was later the Earl of Thanet. And in 1630, Anne herself married for the second time. She married a very eminent nobleman who was himself widowed, of course, Philip Herbert, the fourth Earl of Pembroke and Montgomery. It's not entirely clear why. I think it may be that she'd been actually left 
financially rather ill-provided after her first widowhood. She had didn't have a secure home of her own. She was living in one of her mother's family homes, and she may have felt she needed the protection of an eminent man, which Lord Pembroke certainly was. He was a famous patron of the arts and later on builder. He rebuilt a very famous country house called Wilson House in Wiltshire, and he's celebrated in art history as great patron of the artists Anthony Van Dyke. But it turned out not to be a happy marriage at all. Lord Pembroke had, by all accounts, a, a domineering, rather brutal personality, which seems rather at odds with the patron of arts. And from about 1635, they lived largely separate lives with separate households. And of 20 years of marriage, they were only together for about five. Anne lived mainly at a secondary Herbert house called Ramsbury and in various houses in London rather than at Wilton, though it did give her the opportunity to see his major building projects, in particular the building of Wilton House. And there's a curious point here, isn't there, Karen, that there is a famous portrait, the group portrait, of Lord Pembroke and his family by Sir Anthony Van Dyke, which used to be thought to show Lady Anne as the then Countess, but now isn't. Is that right? Well, absolutely. This is a It's the biggest painting, a surviving painting that Van Dyck ever made, a portrait, and it shows Philip Herbert and his children from his first marriage. He didn't marry Anne because he needed more children, more heirs. He had quite a number, including, as we've heard already, a number who had died, but he had sons. But by the time this picture was painted in the mid-1630s, his marriage to Anne had broken down. And it's uh, this great picture, which is still at Wilton House today, and is tremendously famous. A lot of recording of historical programs is carried out at Wilton, and they always seem to stand in front of this picture. So it is quite well known. And we have Pembroke himself, his family members, and a mysterious woman sitting in black, with blonde hair, looking extremely grumpy. And um, it was always thought, given the date during his marriage to Anne, that this must be Anne. But more recently, art historians, including I particularly, feel that this is the case, that this blonde lady can't possibly be Lady Anne. So it looks as if what Pembroke did was actually put in a posthumous image of his late first wife, because he had fallen out so badly with Anne. She was, after all, his first wife was the mother of all those children, many now grown up, who are depicted. So a blonde lady can't be Lady Anne. But the grumpy expression, could it not be a mistress or something? That is so not um, conforming with the decorum of the period. I think one could read it as grumpy or rather distant, which would be consistent with being dead. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, and the curious thing one could say is that actually there was an artistic convention, a well-established one, for representing a deceased person within a painting, was that you presented a portrait of them and will come to Lady Anne's own triptych, which is like a posthumous commemoration of her family. Lord Pembroke could have had a portrait of his first wife to represent her, but instead he edited out completely and puts his late wife in, which is actually contrary to convention, isn't it? And a very deliberate editing out of Anne. Exactly. And I mean, anybody who saw the portrait, I think, would instantly clock this. This would Mm. be very visible. 
But I think, you know, you do make a very good point that certainly in earlier portrait painting, it was not uncommon to include portraits of deceased family members as if they were still alive. So this would be, you know, Van Dyke will be following, obviously, Herbert's orders, Pembroke's orders. So he'd be doing what Pembroke wanted. And this is something that we see in images, for instance, of Henry VIII and his family members, you know, portrait of Henry VIII with his deceased father looking alive, his deceased mother looking alive, and his recently deceased wife, Jane Seymour, mother of his son. So what Pembroke is doing has many precedents in this. That's fascinating. Would Anne have then seen this picture of Philip Herbert, fourth Earl of Pembroke and Montgomery, her husband, with the late wife and the children? Would she have laid her eyes on it and, well, and felt so snubbed by it? It's so enormous you couldn't possibly miss it. It depends whether he always kept it at Wilton. Somebody like uh, Pembroke, of course, has lodgings at court because when the court is actively in London, they're attending. So whether this picture was initially on display in his London quarters or whether it went out to Wilton and was there from the outset, we don't really know. But of course, it is off, as we keep saying, it's after they were estranged. So Anne would be living at Ramsbury and we can only speculate. I mean, it's a small world and gossip went round. So she, one can't imagine she'd be unaware of Yes. Did Anne and Philip Herbert have children? You said that uh, Philip Herbert didn't need to have any further children, but did they have any together as part of this second marriage for Anne? They did. There's mention of two presumably premature boys who are stillborn. And of course, that again is a reminder of what life was like for women at the period. We've heard about children boys who die very young, but also stillborn children that women tended, as long as they were able to conceive, to have a lot of pregnancies. And it was most unusual for all those children to survive and even more unusual for them to live to any kind of adulthood. So these two premature sons, she was 40 when she married. So so biologically speaking, uh, exactly. a bit more of a risk at that point. Very much so, yeah. yeah. What caused this second marriage to deteriorate, apart from the fact that the husband wasn't very nice? Well, I think he was famously, as Stephen said, he was really, he was famous for his very bad temper. You know, it's just very unfortunate that she should have selected, you know, somebody who just was of a very bad character. They'd already separated, really, when we, we start getting into the run-up to the civil war in Britain. And Anne is a convinced royalist. And her husband, even though he's such a powerful leading figure at court with a leading role, a leading job at court, he actually becomes a parliamentarian. So he is supporting the other side against the king. So it's a bit like Brexit and Remain. It was a very savage divide between people. Yes, like Remain and Leave. Would it have been dangerous for Anne at this point to be a royalist? Well, I'm not sure one would say it was dangerous. So the so civil war really breaks out at the beginning of the 1640s. So it's King Charles and it's really 
parliamentarians rising up against his what had become his autocrat was seen as his autocratic rule and people couldn't really avoid taking sides and you have a series of really savage battles you have people going into exile the whole whole society is turned upside down and what happens to Anne, very at the beginning, really, of the war, she moves in 1642 to one of her estranged husband's properties, Baynard's Castle, which is on the north side of the River Thames in London. And it's um, an old property. The name remains today. I think there's a big car park on it. And she lives there. And we hear about her life there. First of all, her younger daughter goes with her, but her daughter then marries. And before COVID, I think it was harder to envisage her life there. She says that she was in there. She didn't go out. And that is presumably because she was worried London was parliamentarian, not royalist. And she lived this very self-contained life within Baynard's Castle, which sounds like lockdown. So, now we can actually understand more clearly what it was like. Mm. There was this conflict obviously going on across the country. There was conflict within her marriage. She was estranged. She was moving to another property. But the English civil wars seem to have brought Anne some good fortune. Stephen, tell us, tell us why Anne's luck started to change around this period. The Civil War was a very strange and difficult time for England and a very strange but critical period in Anne's life. She was long estranged from her husband and, as Karen has said, living in one of his houses, Baynard's Castle in London. So she was a royalist woman living in the midst of a parliamentarian city but almost certainly protected by the knowledge that her husband, who had gone over to the parliamentarian cause, was a very eminent, a leading figure in it. She would have been protected by that. And she stayed in Baynard's Castle, as Karen said, for the duration of the Civil War. But all sorts of events were swirling around her. And one was that in 1641, her uncle Francis, the fourth Earl of Cumberland, died. And the estates, which Anne had never given up her claim to, passed to his son Henry, the fifth Earl. But in 1643, the fifth Earl died, that's in the middle of the Civil War, with no male heir. And he left a daughter, Elizabeth, Lady Elizabeth Clifford, and she married the first Earl of Cork of Boyle family and became the Countess of Cork. So in the middle of the Civil War, the two people who had stood between Anne and her inheritance, her uncle and her cousin, both died, and there was another heir, her cousin, Lady Elizabeth Clifford. And Anne at last comes into the greater part of her inheritance. But she couldn't take it up because of the circumstance of civil war and she couldn't safely leave London because the war was raging across the Midlands and much of the country. So that's one point. And another is that her estates themselves were very much affected by the conflict and in particular Skipton Castle, which was now Anne's by right, but which she'd, I don't think, ever actually seen or not since her infancy, was garrisoned by royalist troops, besieged by parliamentary forces and forced to surrender in 1645. So Anne, shut up in Baynard's castle, has these dramatic events happening around her. Her uncle dies, her cousin dies. There is now an unresolved legal dispute between her and her cousin, Lady Elizabeth Clifford, over how the estates will be divided. 
but she can't do anything about this because of the civil war. But she does do one other rather extraordinary thing in these years, which Karen, I think, will, will tell us about. It's a most extraordinary thing. We talked a moment ago about this enormous dynastic picture that her estranged husband, Pembroke, had painted, had cause to have painted, and whether or not there's any connection. So she's banged up in Baynard's Castle, and she commissions. We know so little about how this came about. We have the painting itself. She initially commissions two versions, and ultimately, one was at Skipton Castle, but ended up just falling apart and rotting and being destroyed. The other one was at Appleby Castle and survives today. And so we can only go really by the surviving one, which today is on view at Abbott Hall Art Gallery in Kendal, although I think they're closed for renovation till May. But it's known as the Great Triptych, this three-part picture. It's nine feet high. I'm using feet because those were the measurements at the time. And although we don't know who painted it, that doesn't really matter. It was probably a number of artists, given its size. It's commissioned and totally dictated by Lady Anne. So there's a central sort of square panel. It's painted on canvas in which we see fictive representations of her dead parents, poignantly close together, which of course in life they weren't, and of the two deceased brothers who preceded her. On the wall, she has fictive portraits of women relatives who were important in her life. And this represents the moment when she herself was conceived. All over the painting, there are sections of written text. And down the sides, there are heraldic coats of arms, which refer back to those illustrious medieval forebears that Stephen mentioned at the beginning. There's a left-hand panel, self-contained, which notionally shows Lady Anne at the age of 15, 1605, when her father died, and she's above her on the shelves are books representing her reading and her education, her tutor and her governess, fictive portraits on the walls, and perhaps most importantly on the right is Lady Anne as she was then, 1646, banged up in Baynard's Castle, more books behind her, but disordered because she's actively using them and reading them. Fictive portraits of her two husbands on the wall, her dead husband, Richard Sackville, her at this time still living but estranged husband, Philip Herbert, Earl of Pembroke. And she is there with a dog and cat for company. And the texts explain that there she is in Baynard's castle. Now, this extraordinary three-part painting is completely unprecedented. And what it's about is it's Anne's autobiography, but her autobiography as the Clifford heiress, as the woman yes. who has finally inherited. Yes, it's in the story of Anne that we're talking about in this podcast, it's Lady Anne Clifford reimagining her place in the story of her life in picture form, in art form. 
really claiming that she is back, I suppose. In colossal form. I mean, we... The family honour is restored, I suppose. The family honour is restored. We look at paintings in books or on our screens, on our laptop or our phone or whatever. And the key thing about this picture is its monster size. And as I say, there were two of them. If people want to look at it, it's on Google Arts. There's a very high resolution image of it available through Google Arts. Mm. So the Great Triptych 1646 is what you need to type in if you're listening at the moment and want to have a pause and uh, have a look on Google Arts. It's a fantastic image of, you know, what you've been describing. If people can't see it anyway, you know, what you've described there is a really complicated story, but uh, very detailed and intricate, but and one that really plays upon images that we would encounter in our modern world of photoshopping and airbrushing and imagining and doctoring. It happens a lot, doesn't it? I mean, it's the absolute opposite of naturalistic since most of the people depicted in it are long, long dead. But the key thing is that it restores this sense of pride where of the family history that dates back so many centuries, as Stephen was describing at the start, way back to the Norman period. So this is the sense, I think, in the story that Anne is gradually getting things back. She's getting back control and she's on the way up again after experiencing some terrible lows. Absolutely. Including two failed marriages and, you know, lost children and all this sorts of thing. Okay, so we now move into a period where Anne moves away from London and we've put this in our plan as Anne's homecoming. She goes back to the place of her birth, Northern England. So how old was Anne, Lady Anne Clifford at this point when she goes back to sort of reclaim her ancestral lands? She was 59, wasn't she? Yeah. She was in uh, 1649. I think this section is very much you, Stephen. Okay. Uh, yeah. It's extraordinary to think of Lady Anne living in uh, London in Baynard's Castle, but commissioning this extraordinary picture, which I think is normally dated to about 1646 to 7. Is that right, Karen? Absolutely. She. It includes the date 1646 on it, which which is very mm. helpful. But in that right-hand panel, which is, as it were, the present-day Lady Anne, on the table she has a document which is kind of hanging down and we can read on it. And it's family history, as all the right, the copious writing on it is. And it includes the marriage of her second daughter, who married in 1647. So it mm. looks like that has been added. So the picture is not yeah. finished till 47. Yeah, and it's extraordinary to think of her commissioning this, living in London in the short interval between the outbreaks of the Civil War. But what it clearly tells us is that Anne was envisaging the moment when she could return to the north of England. And the fact that she'd had two versions of the pictures made suggests that she'd already decided that there would be one version for Westmoreland, for Appleby Castle, and one version for Yorkshire, for Skipton. And she was already planning her return north. And the great triptych, as Karen's described it, is an assertion of her place in her family's ancestry as the uh, legitimate Clifford heir. But of course, England was still a turbulent place. In 1648, the Second Civil War broke out. Anne might have thought she could go north with her enormous triptychs, but she couldn't. War broke out again. Scottish troops invaded the north and her estates were involved again. Appleby Castle was occupied by Scottish armies. And after their defeat at Preston, Appleby was slighted, that is, deliberately damaged so it couldn't be defended by parliamentarian forces. And Skipton Castle was slighted, a lot of its roof taken off, very badly damaged by the parliamentarians 
around the same time. Anne must have heard of this, but she couldn't do anything about it. So it's an ironic point that the castles, for which she'd almost certainly commissioned the two versions of the triptych just the year before, were both directly involved in the Civil War and very badly damaged by the parliamentarian government. She must have been furious that she was trying to correspond with people in her estates, but as yet, she hadn't been there. In 1649, in January, Charles I was executed, and this must have been a devastating blow for royalists like Lady Anne, who'd grown up and always known the court. But for the time being, the event drew a line under the civil wars, and it was safer to travel. Her king was dead, his heir was in exile, her daughters were both married, she was estranged from her husband, who in any case died not long afterwards, and at last there was nothing to stop Lady Anne from moving except lack of ready cash. She had to borrow £100 for expenses from the Countess of Kent, and on the 11th of July 1649 she set out from London, and she never went there again. Anne arrived in Skipton on the 18th of July, so it only took her a week to travel there, suggesting that travel really was quite safe again, and she hadn't been there since she was an infant in 1590. Indeed, she'd not been to the north at all since her trip to bury her mother in 1616. However, once she arrived, I think she knew she'd come home, and she never went south again. What condition did she find her Civil War-torn estates in when she arrived? In pretty ropey condition. Because of the wars, the rents hadn't been collected in several years. Two of her castles, Appleby and Skipton, had been garrisoned and then deliberately slighted. That means damaged in such a way that they couldn't be be defended again by the parliamentarian authorities. I understand that there were five castles that Anne restored as part of her story? Yes, Charles. What Lady Anne had inherited was something like two-thirds of the Clifford estates. Her cousin, Lady Elizabeth Clifford, had married the first Earl of Cork. And for reasons that I don't quite understand, but I think go back to the medieval entails, the Yorkshire estates in the West Riding were divided between Anne and Lady Elizabeth. And that was the subject of another dispute and another long lawsuit. But eventually, Anne got what was called the Honour of Craven, centred on Skipton Castle. There was a tower house called Barden Tower, which you might regard as a sixth castle, which was actually disputed between them. Lady Anne specially wanted it because it had been rebuilt as a private retreat by the shepherd lord. But Lady Elizabeth got an estate called Bolton Abbey, and she also inherited a very large manor in the East Riding called Lonsborough, and those eventually passed from the Boyle family to the Dukes of Devonshire. And although the Devonshires sold Lonsborough in the 1840s, the present Duke of Devonshire still owns Bolton Abbey. But Lady Anne inherited the larger share of the West Riding estates and the whole of the Barony of Westmoreland. So there was Skipton Castle in the West Riding, and in Westmoreland there were the castles of Broom, that's spelt Brougham, B-R-O-U-G-H-A-M, Brough, spelt B-R-O-U-G-H, Appleby and Pendragon. So she inherited five castles, and they're in a rather mixed state. Two of them, Skipton and Appleby, had both been slighted. They'd been recently used as residences. And two, Brough and Pendragon, had suffered fires back in the 16th century and actually been ruined for over 100 years. And that left Brougham, which is the place where her mother had lived and died, and that was merely neglected. How much work was involved in the restoration of these five castles then, and what was the price tag? 
We don't know the cost of any of this, Charles. I doubt if in Expressed's totals it would look especially impressive because the works extended over many years, had to be funded out of income from the estates and were all carried out with local materials and by local craftsmen. That's one of the great points about them. But also because it took several years before Lady Anne was really fully in charge of her estates and collecting rents. And she started with a dispute over possession of part of the Yorkshire estates in any case. In many areas, the tenants were disputing the rents or asking for relief. And for years, she was touring her estates, putting things in order and negotiating and politely but firmly insisting on her rights. And Mass was also confused by the fact that she was a royalist woman trying to regain control of her estates under a parliamentarian government. And she had to cope with a vehemently Puritan parliamentarian garrison in Appleby Castle at the time in the early 1650s. But nevertheless, she set to work with local masons and carpenters to restore her castles and churches, and her chief agent was a steward, a man called Gabriel Vincent, until his death in February 1666. When he died, Lady Anne commissioned a fine grave slab for him in Appleby Church, which records that he was the chief director of her buildings in the north. In her diary, she records that his death caused her great grief and sorrow. So Anne was restoring her castles, but not in any kind of fashionable classical Inigo Jones way, to the way they'd been originally in the 16th century, to the way that she remembered from early visits in her youth. She wanted to live on her estates and hold court as Lady of the Honour of Westmoreland in the old style and preside in the old feudal manner over her tenantry. She was well aware of contemporary fashions. She'd spent much of her life at court. She was, she'd was she been married to Lord Pembroke, who was one of the most up-to-date leading architectural patrons of the age. But for herself, she wanted none of this. So, for example, in Appleby, the chief town of her barony in Westmoreland, she repaired the castle, though for some years she had to share it with a parliamentarian garrison, But in 1651, she also founded almshouses for 12 poor women, which opened in 1653, which still survive performing their original function today. And in Appleby, she restored the parish church of St. Lawrence, which was very important to her because that's where her mother was buried in a superb tomb monument that Anne had commissioned in 1616-17. And at Skipton, the other major town on her estates, this was the seat of the barony of Craven, and she'd never really seen since her infancy when she arrived there in 1649 and the big parish church there holy trinity skipton had the main group of clifford family tombs and that's where her father the sailor earl was buried but he had no tomb monument and even though he'd been such a bad father and had done her such a disservice she set up a magnificent heraldic monument over her father's grave surrounded by shields representing the clifford ancestry and she paid for major repairs of the church So it's like restoring the honour of her family again, but in stone. Very much so. Um, As with the great triptych, as with her picture, her restorations were about family identity and ancestral pride and about the ancestral position of the Cliffords as one of the great aristocratic families of Northern England. Lady Anne was an intensely conservative person, intensely aware of her family's status, their almost legendary ancestry. It sounds as though she was quite aware of her own feminine characteristics of nurturing and caring and being maternal and actually being a good landlady. Would that be a fair comment? 
That would absolutely be a fair comment, Charles. There are famous stories about Lady Anne insisting on her rights, but she never insisted on more than her rights. And there are certainly many instances of her not insisting on rents when she knew that tenants couldn't pay, and of her generosity to tenants, of her generosity in giving doles to the poor, and in setting up charities. She aimed to be a Christian landowner and follow the precepts and the teachings of Christ. She was personally a very devout woman who read the Psalms and the Bible and a great deal else, very learned, and one of her close friends was Bishop Rainbow of Carlisle. So that is certainly fair. It's a marked contrast to the characteristics of her two husbands and her father, who she eventually honours, despite his um, negative characteristics. That is absolutely true. Both her father and both her husbands were bad and neglectful landlords who simply regarded their estates as assets to be sweated, to be milked of all of the income that they could squeeze out of them in order to fund a lavish lifestyle at court. And Lady Anne, having experienced and seen what life at court was like, and what extravagant lifestyles were like for all her adult life. In her old age, one of the most striking things about her is how decisively she turned her back on all that, turned her back on the court, and devoted herself to estates, and in many ways to the well-being of the people who lived there. And for this reason, in this way, over the years, from being at first, I think, rather resented as a landlord who'd come back to claim ranks, she became revered and loved there. Yes, giving back to the community, as I suppose we might say in our modern language. Uh, Yes, very much so. This uh, takes us into the later part of Anne's life. She lived a long life, didn't she? How old was she when she died? She was 86 when she died at Brougham, the the castle associated with her mother, in 1676. And the eulogy by the bishop, who was her close friend, was quoted at the beginning and speaking about her her wisdom and her fortitude, which I think was absolutely the characteristic that defined her, really, her resilience and her determination. And as Stephen said, her religious belief, a Protestant religious belief, was tremendously important to her and really was a driving force of the way she lived the latter part of her life. Yes, she's, um, as we mentioned in the introduction, remembered by the bishop with some very positive words. The bishop says in his eulogy as well, I believe, that she had a number of titles. Could you just give us a list of all the titles that she did have over her lifetime? Because it's it's quite complicated, isn't it? Anne was born as Lady Anne Clifford, as the, uh, the daughter of a nobleman, and she was Countess of Dorset, and in her widowhood had the right to remain, to retain the title Countess of Dorset. And then she married the Earl of Pembroke and Montgomery. So once she was widowed from him, she was Anne, Countess of Dorset, Pembroke and Montgomery, though she customarily signed herself Anne Pembroke, or AP. So she was in her old age, she would have been known as Lady Pembroke or the Countess of Pembroke, or in the full form, the Countess of Dorset, Pembroke and Montgomery. It's, I think, something of a tribute to her personality, the force of Lady Anne's own personality, that posthumously she has always been known as Lady Anne Clifford. And I think it's kind of tribute to her own priorities 
and her personality that sort of posthumously her own identity as Anne Clifford has triumphed over and eclipsed her marital identity because the social status of being a countess was immensely important. And mm-hmm. that's why she would always have been known as the Countess of Dorset and Pembroke and Montgomery in her life. But she's remembered as Lady Anne Clifford, and I think that tells us a great deal. It restores her name, doesn't it? And her own identity. because She regained agency in her own right, say, spectacularly in old age, but she did it under the names of her husband, because that's how people were seen then. That's how mm. women were seen. Yes. And I suppose as people looking back on this now from the 21st century, it's a story of a total turnaround, uh, you know, a 360 degree turnaround in fortunes and and a restoration of honour of the family name, of her identity, of her original designation, of bringing the history of the Clifford family back into, into line with what one would expect, I suppose. Quite a lot of Anne's life was about restoration and commemoration. That included commemoration of her parents. She set up two monuments, both her mother in Appleby and her father in Skipton. And she set up another remarkable monument to her mother, which we haven't talked about yet, but is a particularly poignant one. In 1616, Anne had travelled north to see her mother to discuss the family court case with her. She was at the time married to the Earl of Dorset. And she'd been in the north for only a couple of weeks. When a messenger arrived, he was summoned south again. And her mother was a great support to her. And Lady Anne had what she described as a heavy and grievous parting from her mother. They travelled south in Lady Cumberland's coach, about a mile south to the point where the road reaches the crest of a low hill. And beyond there, the road headed south up the Eden Valley and um, back to London for Anne. And there, at that point, she and her mother parted because Lady Anne would have been travelling by either on horse or by something called horse litter. The coach couldn't have coped with the mountain roads at the point. She had the heavy and grievous parting and she never saw her mother again. Her mother died not very long after that and Lady Anne had to return the following year to bury her and she commissioned the magnificent tomb monument. And she never forgot this moment when she last met her dear mother, um, her blessed mother, as she often referred to her, And she set up a pillar in 1656 called the Countess's Pillar on the site of their last meeting, which bears the family arms, an inscription and a sundial. And she set up a charity and she provided that food and drink would be distributed there to the poor of the parish on the anniversary of their last meeting. That was the 2nd of April. And the commemorative service is still held there on the anniversary. And we can still see that today, can't we? It's, it's, yes, it's, yes. it's railed off, isn't it? Is, a... um, the road has been widened and moved, but as you drive down, I think it's the A66, the road from Penrith towards Appleby and Stainmore, you see it by the roadside, the Countess Pillar, which is next to where the old road is now a, is now a narrow track. So you can still see Countess Pillar about a mile south of Broom Castle. And Brough Castle is also still in English Heritage's care. And there's the parish church of St. Wilfred Broom, which was rebuilt by Lady Anne, and another wonderful church called St. Ninian Ninekirks, which is also in Broom Parish. And then there's Appleby Castle and Parish Church. There's the ruins of Pendragon Castle up in the hills near Malastang. Skipton Castle is in private ownership, but open to the public. And there's Holy Trinity Church Skipton. 
So there are a great many of the buildings associated with Lady Anne are still there and are publicly accessible in one way and another. Do they survive in good condition or have they suffered from the ravages of time since her restorative work? Charles, that is a very good question, and I fear that Lady Anne would be bitterly disappointed in her heirs, given what she did for them. Her daughter, Margaret, married Thomas Tufton, who succeeded as Earl of Thanet. Now, the Tuftons had estates at a place called Hoffield in Kent, and they inherited these great estates in the north of England. It was like another country, really. And it's clear that Lord Thanet really wasn't prepared to go on living in what were effectively unmodernised late medieval castles as they'd been restored by Lady Anne. And so what he did was, in fairly short order, he unroofed Bruff and Pendragon and Broom castles, and the building materials were partly used to remodel Appleby Castle, and he built a new residential wing there in the classical style, and the other Westmoreland castles were all abandoned, and they were all shells by 1700. And similarly, in Yorkshire, Barton Tower was abandoned and unroofed, but instead Skipton Castle was, to a rather lesser extent, modernised as a residence. So he retained two out of five castles as residences, the ones that were actually on the edge of market towns, and the others were all abandoned and unroofed. Now, the estates passed in the Tufton family. The Thanet title died out, but an illegitimate son of the last Lord Thanet inherited the estates, and he was later created Lord Hothfield. So there was a family who were called Tufton, the Lords Hothfield, and they inherited the estates in the 20th century. But then, after the Second World War, the estates shrank startlingly quickly. It's quite hard to say why. I think it may have been to do with very heavy inheritance tax, with upland farming not actually generating much in the way of of surpluses at all. I suspect there must have been punishing death duties. There may have been poor management, I don't know. But for whatever reason, Appleby Castle and Skipton Castle were both sold, Skipton in 1955, Appleby in 1962. The Lord Hothfield had already vested Broom and Bruff Castle and the Countess Pillar in the guardianship of the Ministry of Works, and that is why they are now in English Heritage's care. But the estates, ultimately inherited from Lady Anne, shrank and shrank. I mean, I think there is still a Hothfield estate in Westmoreland, but it is, shall we say, not what it was. I believe the Hothfields still own some of the family portraits, but they certainly don't own the Great Triptych anymore. Karen, can you talk about that? Well, the Great Triptych, the surviving one, which was the one that had been at Appleby Castle, has ended up in Kendal in the Abbot Hall Art Gallery. In her latter years, Anne also commissioned painted portraits sort of copies and copies and copies and versions of her forebears, only her forebears on her own family side. She's not, of course, commissioning pictures of her deceased husbands, but of her, a few of her deceased elder brothers and particularly of herself as an older woman, looking rather as she does in the right-hand wing of the Great Triptych, and of her parents. And these pictures, these pictures tend to be head and shoulders, 
just as she used local artisans for the building and rebuilding work, she used a local painter. Uh, she actually at one stage calls him her painter, John Bracken. And we presume that he is the one who turns out all these portraits. So distributed all over the place, and as Stephen says, certainly in the family of the present Lord Hothfield, are these various images of Anne or her family members made at this time in the latter 17th century. And uh, they are part of this colossal amount of material culture evidence that she's left. Portraits painted of her by other people from her early days in London, these latter portraits, the great triptychs, the funerary monuments that, as Stephen said, she commissioned either from scratch or adding to creating a monument for her father, who had long dead, but she was actually putting up a great heraldic monument. The buildings that she built and particularly that she restored, the churches that she restored and creating family mausoleums in those churches monuments that she commissioned to people who were important in in her life as well. Samuel Daniel, the celebrated author, who had been her childhood tutor. She commissioned a monument in a church local to his family, Beckington. She left, as I said, what survive of her diaries and a form of autobiography. She left three sets, in each case of three volumes, of these what she called her great books of record. And these were the almost obsessive accounts of family history, which related to the claim to her property. So she is a very interesting figure in the amount of diverse evidence that she generated and she's left for us. Yes, it's a monumental amount of evidence, uh, both in terms of the size of some of these ruins, but also the sheer number of documents and portraits that survive as well, including that one that we mentioned in the introduction in the National Portrait Gallery in London, which is some, some achievement, I suppose, for that to be hanging there in central London, where you're going to have lots of tourists seeing it. So Yes, that was acquired comparatively recently, I think within the last 10 years. Hmm. It's a version, there are two versions of that portrait painted while she was living at Knoll and by an artist called William Larkin, who was working, painted a number of family portraits, including the big full-length portrait of her first husband, that's at Kenwood, where he's so spectacularly dressed. And I think we should say that it was part of a campaign that the National Portrait Gallery has increasingly had for really many years now, but increasingly addressing the comparative lack of images of important historical women. And that really speaks to sort of a very you know, a huge, really, sort of question about how historical women have been represented and how much they've been allowed to be visible. But, you know, it's very fortunate that it is such a good portrait. It is a portrait that really gives us an idea of what she looked like in her late 20s. And so, along with the other portraits of her, we do have a real sense of her, her appearance and her, her character. She's a very inspirational woman, as we've covered, and you could say a feminist icon and perhaps even an icon for aspiring female lawyers. What's your favourite 
a memory of Lady Anne Clifford in physical form, whether it's a building or a document or a diary entry or a portrait, uh, what would you pick as your favourite? Uh, Stephen, first of all. Oh, I think I'd choose the Countess Pillar. <laughs> it's an unusual thing uh, in representing a moment, hmm. uh, a, a monument, the moment uh, when a woman parted with her mother for the last time. I think there's something immensely poignant about that. I can't think of a parallel to it, really, of someone commemorating that, a person through that moment, the moment, the last moment that they ever saw each other. A heavy and grievous partner. I found it just deeply moving. A poignant moment, literally, as well, because it rises to a point, doesn't it, this piece of uh, yes. this sculpture. Interesting. And for you, Karen? Well, I would, unsurprisingly, how can one not also say the Countess Pillar? As Stephen says, it's hard to think of a parallel to it. And it's such a specifically chosen subject, as he says, the moment when she last saw her mother. And it's something that we can all identify with today. If I have to choose another item of material culture, I would, of course, really go for the Great Triptych, simply because it is so complex, so rich, so much a creation of her mind. And we are increasing now now concerned and trying to redress the absence of women artists in public collections and museums. That's harder to do because there were many fewer of them, so fewer examples of their work survive. But with the Great Triptych, as I said, we don't know who painted it. We have to presume that there were a team of artists, given its size. Some names have been mentioned of people who were Netherlandish migrant artists working in London at that time. Civil War period, difficult time to get work as an artist. But the artist is really immaterial because the creative mind behind it is entirely Lady Anne's. And so this is a creative act of her own. Yes, she. Um, I think if we were to sum her up, she was someone who was never really due to inherit. She was always going to be lowered down the pecking order, but she was thrust into a position where she thought she was going to benefit from her father's will and then went on this lifetime legal battle, taking on various foes and emerged eventually victorious into her sort of later part of her life. Unfortunately, obviously, time met away at some of her work But um, nevertheless, as we've just been discussing, there are so many other pieces of evidence that remain to her memory. And I think that's the ultimate thing to consider as we close our discussion. Thank you very much to both of you for talking to us. Senior Properties Historian Dr Stephen Brindle of English Heritage and Honorary Professor at University College London, Professor Karen Hearn. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Charles. Thank you. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll hear about new site improvements, including a triumphal feature at Richborough Roman Fort in Kent. We're building a whole new gate to show the scale of the entrance to Britannia as it was. I mean, it'll be made of wood and it'll be something that just helps people realise that this was a really established place. Thanks for listening. See you next time.